is you look at your text of scripture, you'll notice that in the next several verses, Paul addresses marriage, parenting, and slaves and masters. Can you imagine a more controversial or intimidating set of passages to preach in our day? Well, I hope you'll relate to me in some, to some extent, understanding that it, it's a puzzling thing to know how to preach these texts um, at any time, but particularly when these texts find so much debate, not only by the, the church at large, but by unbelievers' interactions with these texts as well. And um, it's a challenge to know how to proceed here, and I've puzzled over this for some time. And uh, this is our plan. This week, I am going to talk a lot about the way that we read these texts or approach these from an interpretive standpoint. And that means that this sermon will be more teachy than preachy, if that makes sense. And then next week, we'll consider Ephesians 5:22 through 33, looking at husbands and wives. The following week, we'll consider parents and children, and especially fathers and their children. And then the following week, we'll tackle the text on slaves and masters. And so we have several weeks ahead of us that are going to require perhaps more careful thinking than usual on your part and more careful articulation than usual on my part. And so as we go through these things, I just want to say, if you have questions or comments, I would love to talk to you about them. Um, there, there's always a chance that I miscommunicate. And so if there is something that doesn't make sense or, or that is really troubling to you, I would love to talk to you about those things. I might not have the answer. I can, I can guarantee I probably won't on a lot of things. But I think as we come together as an assembly, we can receive this text not primarily as an intimidating passage, but as God's word for us. So I'm going to pray that, that God would do that for us as we try to frame this text in, in an interpretive way. Father, we receive this text with intimidation, knowing that there are things that we just might not ever know this, in, in this world and in this life. But we also approach this text believing that your spirit does reveal your truth to us. We approach this text believing that it is your word for us now. And we approach this text understanding that we need to give ourselves over to it, to submit ourselves to its teaching and to put it into action in our lives. So I pray that you would give us wisdom now, that you would help us to think carefully, and ultimately that as we approach this text, we would do so in a way that would glorify you, that would respect this as your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get too far down the road, I think I need to give a word to anyone who is not married. Because you might look at this text and say, this text is just for people who are married. And so I should tune out here or it doesn't really matter to me. So I want to give you a few reasons why you should track with us regardless of your marital situation. First, whether or not you pursue marriage in the future, you are connected in this assembly to people who are married. And as we've seen already in Ephesians, Christians have a responsibility to work out their salvation together, to live the Christian life together. And unmarried individuals, you need to know that married individuals in this church need you. They need you to speak into their lives. They need you to connect to them. 
and for you to meaningfully relate to them as an unmarried person to married people, you need to understand what God says about marriage in the Bible. You need to be able to soak in these texts so that you can speak in a meaningful way to those who you have connected to covenantally in church membership. So although you might feel as though these texts don't have direct relevance to you, they do have direct relevance to the people that you know and love, and therefore, by extension, the text has relevance to you. Second, especially for those who desire to pursue marriage, it's important for you to be thinking about marriage prior to being married. Some of us will not have thought about these texts of scripture until well into our marriages, but I can guarantee you that about every married couple would tell you we wish we would have thought about marriage more before we got married. And this text will help you do that. It'll help you think about marriage from God's perspective. But then third, as Paul talks about marriage in this text, he indicates that every Christian marriage is to be based off, off Christ in the church, the way that Christ related to his church. So for that reason, marriage then becomes a picture of Christ and the church. And if you can soak in this text and grab onto it, even though you're not married, I think it will help you relate to marriage and married people better because you'll start to look at their marriage not as either something to be cynical towards or something to be jealous of, but instead something that's a gracious display of Christ's redemptive work and purchase of his bride. So I think for all of us that is true is we soak in this text whether we're cynical towards marriage because of a previous marriage we've been in or because we've looked at parents who failed to navigate marriage well or because we long for marriage and don't have it or because we find ourselves in a marriage that's not particularly happy, as we start to think of marriage in these terms, it reframes it and gives us a lens of faith through which to view marriage, our own and others. So I think whether we're married or not, this text finds great relevance for each of us. And beyond that, what I'm about to articulate this morning, I think is going to help us understand the rest of what we'll call the household code, where Paul deals with marriages and parents and children. And then particularly, this will be helpful as we try to understand how to interpret a text regarding slaves and masters. So to give you a preview of where we're going, I'm going to start by just talking about what we do and don't know about Paul's audience. I'm going to talk about household codes and then a head body metaphor, this imagery that Paul uses. And then we're going to move on to some initial theological formation. So if you're trying to understand what I'm doing from a Bible interpretation point of view, we're trying to bring together history and then the literary context of this passage. And we bring those things together. And as we understand the historical background and the literary context, we can start to put together a theological understanding of this text. So this is just good Bible interpretation, uh, but we need it more here because these texts are so debated and controversial. So if there are parts that get boring for you, I, I apologize, but these things are just necessary. And, and I think by attending to them, we're going to be able to rise above some of the debates that happen even within Christian churches about how to read this text and we'll be able to proceed better as we might disagree with each other in this assembly about how to read this text. It would be surprising to me if everyone reads these the same way, much less applies them the same way. So by 
considering these things perhaps in more depth and maybe more academically than we normally do, I think, I think we'll be helped. So let me talk first about Paul's audience, what we do and what we don't know. Um, Paul is writing to people who lived about 2,000 years ago. It's hard for us to imagine what life was like just a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, think about how long America has existed, uh, just a couple hundred years, and then think about how long this text has existed, about 2,000 years. And as different as life was when our country was founded, multiply that by, you know, a bunch, I don't know math, I'm not a math guy, 10 times, is that right, 100 times? And you'll get to the differences between us and, and Paul's day. So I don't know that it's quite possible for us to say we know exactly what life was like for people 2,000 years ago. We have some pointers. We have some things that we sort of know. So I want to lay out a few of them and, and point out some things that maybe we think we know, but we don't. So first, we might assume um, that all marriages functioned in the same way in the ancient world. And connected to that, we might assume that all women were treated in the same way in the ancient world. So we sometimes get this perspective that in our modern day, we have escaped from the bonds of, of bad treatment of women and all women were treated the same way throughout history. And that's really not the case. As we read ancient documents, especially wealthy women, were probably privileged ab above men. And so there were, in, in the church that Paul is writing to, probably women of different economic status and social status. And so we shouldn't think that every woman who is hearing this text was an oppressed woman or something like that. Instead, we need to understand that probably Paul is speaking to a group of men and women who are experiencing freedom and oppression in differing ways that are not isolated by gender. Instead, it would be more isolated by social situation or even economic situation, not so much by gender situation. So in our modern day, we tend to talk about things in terms of skin color and gender as the decisive factors, and that's just not the case as we read the ancient literature. So we shouldn't say we should accept or reject things in this text based on gender differences between now and the ancient world. Second, as we read this, I think we need to give special attention to, to the women who were receiving this text. Because there were major differences between our day now and their day then, even in terms of lifespan. So in our day, I think probably women outlive men. Well, the opposite was true in the ancient world, especially as women would die young in childbirth. This was just a very common situation. Whether through childbirth or poor nutrition or other factors, women died earlier than men. So as a result, when there were remarriages, generally there was an older guy marrying a younger woman, and this guy would have likely had children by, by other women, and, and they would have just outlived their spouses. So that starts to frame a little bit of the way that we would assume this text is received. But third, we have major differences in the way that marriages were entered into. We elect our marriages. We, we go about and think, I would like to marry that person. Maybe they want to marry me, and then, and then if they do, we, we get married. And so you can do that through meeting someone through an app on your phone or just in the circumstances of life, 
That's how people enter into marriages now. And that's just not how it was in the ancient world. These were usually prescribed marriages, and you probably had very little control about who you did or did not marry. And so some of the commands that are given are given to people who find themselves in a marriage that they did not choose, but we're hearing these commands in marriages that we did choose. Beyond that, in our day, and especially lately, people are getting married at later and later ages. Well, in the ancient world, most women entered into their first marriage between the ages of 12 and 17 years old, with 14 years old as kind of the average, whereas men entered into their first marriage in the range of 18 to 30 years old. And so it was much more common for, for the husband to be significantly older than the wife, and, and really for the wife to be what we would categorize as a young teenager. In that world, there were different responsibilities placed on a husband with respect to his young wife that, that we just don't deal with. Sometimes we don't deal with these things because we now have medical training and intervention that allows women to, on the whole, expect that they'll come out alive after childbirth. We have different conventions that make it such that a 14-year-old doesn't need to be a strong, burly man to load up a, a vehicle and carry things across town. There are just differences that technology have brought that change the responsibility husbands and wives have as they work out their life together. So we need to think about these things. And, and I think we need to just say, our life is very, very different from these people. And, and when we hear this text, we at least need to recognize that. Because what might seem like a plain reading of Scripture to us is, is maybe not how it would have been understood by the original audience. We're, we're hindered by the fact that we can't totally reconstruct that audience, but it should at least give us some pause to say there may be things going on in this text that we don't quite understand. Whether it's the text about husbands and wives or parents and children, or slaves and masters. So therefore, we have to work harder to remove the distance of time and culture and in, in to hear these texts. So I have not given you very much help on how to understand this passage by pointing those things out, but they need to be pointed out because they, I think, instill in us a little bit of humility as we move into the text. So that's Paul's audience. Let's talk about household codes now. The form of this text is what would be called a household code. So in antiquity, in ancient literature, um, going all the way back to Plato and then in different iterations through Aristotle and other philosophers and, and politicians, there would be writings and they would outline in these household codes the responsibilities that individuals in a household would have to one another. And so we call these things household codes. And they were addressed to the individual who'd be identified as the Lord of the house. And I told you this would be more technical and academic than usual. The Lord of the house, the, the term for that is the curios. Okay, you got to keep that in your mind. But the curios or the Lord of the house would receive these instructions. And that individual was understood to be responsible for enforcing the responsibilities that everyone else in the household would have. In those ancient households, they were comprised of, of like the husband and the wife, of children and slaves and masters. 
So when Paul outlines these individuals, he's just following the ancient conventional household code, addressing every individual that was considered to be part of the family. Okay, so, so that's what Paul is doing. He's using this ancient form of the household code, but Paul does so with some very important distinctions. And if, if we can't catch on to these distinctions, it makes it harder to hear rightly what Paul is saying. The first distinction is this. Paul subordinates individual households to God's household. This, I think, is one of the most important distinctions in Paul's use of the household code. Paul does not start Ephesians by talking about the individual families and household, but establishing God's household, who all who are in Christ are welcomed into. So in the ancient world, as far as I can tell in my reading, there was this idea that the household was the foundational unit of the state, the, the polis, the society. And so you'd want to really firm up the household, and that would result in a good state or nation or country. Well, it's interesting to me that Paul starts with God's household, and I think he's trying to point out that if, God, if you are entered into God's household, that's what will cause you to have a strong personal individual household instead of the other way around. Beyond that, I think Paul has ordered it in this way to say that your ultimate family is God's family. We read of this, or Ruth read of it in Matthew, where your true mothers and brothers are, and sisters are God's household, not your individual family and, and household code, you know, outline. So what this means, I think, for us is that Paul wants households to be um, under the authority and in connection to God's people into the church. This is an important observation because sometimes we can talk about our individual families and household codes as if these are privatized and separate from our life in Christ, where instead Paul subordinates it to our life in Christ. Moving forward, what this does for us is established that what God says about our household is, is what we need to obey. We don't get to determine that. It's, it's subordinated to the teaching about God's family. Beyond that, especially for those who find themselves in broken households or exiled from their households, it is not in your household that you find your true identity or your true meaning, but by virtue of your connection to God's household. So as we go through some of these things, you might say, well, I'm not married, or, or my parents are awful parents, or I failed as a parent. Um, that, that is something that God wants to reconcile as he brings you first into his household, and as that change in identity then bleeds into your personal household. So Paul critiques it or, or changes the household code in that way. But second, he... he changes the household code or, or critiques it a bit by elevating Christ as the Lord of the household instead of whichever male figure was designated as the Lord of the household. So over and over in Ephesians, Jesus is referred to as the curios. That's the word I indicated earlier. And, and Paul, I think, is drawing both from Old Testament background and from these ancient household codes. But in these texts, the surprising thing is that over and over, instead of instructing these individuals to submit to the Lord of their house, they, he gives them responsibilities, and he says to do it as to the Lord. 
So in Ephesians 5.22, wives are instructed to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now Christ is the Lord of that marriage. Children are instructed to obey their parents in the Lord. Now Christ is the Lord of that household and of those children. Slaves are instructed to obey their masters as slaves of Christ. And in fact, very explicitly, he says, masters, you have a master in heaven. And even though our translation says masters, the word there is kurios. Paul is very pointedly and clearly saying, I am breaking from the convention of household codes and establishing Jesus is the Lord of the household. So we have to hear these household codes and instructions in that way. What it does is it sets aside any claim of authority and ownership that we would find within ourselves, and it gives ultimate authority over our homes and families to Jesus Christ. How is this the case? Well, as Paul explained in Ephesians 1.20, God subjected everything under Christ's feet and appointed him as head over all things as Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted into heaven. So, so those are two major critiques of the household code or major changes. But then finally, Paul tweaks the standard household code conventions by addressing the individuals who'd be identified as the subordinates directly. So in the ancient household codes, they would be written and directed only towards the Lord of the house. The, the writers would not have addressed wives or children or slaves. Well, Paul breaks from that convention and he speaks directly to wives. He speaks directly to parents and directly to slaves. And the effect of that is that it emphasizes Christ's rulership and it emphasizes the dignity and identity and value of every member of the household. So if we, if we are not understanding where Paul is breaking from convention, we might read these household codes and say these belong to an ancient era and we, we can just jettison them. They don't matter. But if we start to understand that even as Paul is operating within his cultural construct, he tweaks it and critiques it and provides a different way forward, then I think we need to say this is God's word for us today too. And we need to start to understand how Paul's critique of that household convention would operate in our world and how his instructions here would critique and tweak the way that we would probably in a culturally way understand the household now. So we've thought about Paul's audience, thought about the, the changes in the household code. Now we need to talk about this head body metaphor. The controlling imagery in Ephesians 5, 22 and through 33 as Ben read is this imagery of the head and the body. In this metaphor, the wife is assigned as the body who is to submit to the head, and the husband is identified as the head who is to sacrificially love the body. Now, unless you're reading ancient Greek literature, you might think that Paul came up with this metaphor on his own, and that this is unique to Paul. But the reality is that this was a very common metaphor in the ancient world, and once again, just as with the household code, Paul is grabbing onto a conventional way of talking about something, but he provides some major tweaks to it. But if we don't understand the conventional way it was used, then we're not going to pick up on the tweaks that he makes in what seems like a plain reading of the text is going to misunderstand the unique features that Paul is trying to emphasize here. So in the ancient world, this head-body metaphor was used 
fairly regularly, especially to talk about the state and the ruler. So when I talk about the state, I'm talking about, you know, whether it's a city like Rome or a country, it, it's the, the secular governance. Paul will talk, or ancient writers will talk about the state, and he'll talk about the ruler or the king or, or whatever as the head of the body, the state. Um, so, for example, this guy Seneca, this philosopher and statesman, described Nero as the head of Rome, his body. And as he's talking about Nero's responsibility as the head to the body, Rome, his responsibility was to rule over Rome, and Rome's responsibility was to be Nero's servant, coming to his defense, obeying his commands, and even sacrificing itself to protect the head. So similar to the way, and this is the analogy he uses, that the common soldier on the battlefield needs to be willing to sacrifice himself and even die so that the general can be protected and live, so too should the state, Rome, sacrifice themselves so that Nero can be preserved. So in the common convention, the head was the one to be protected and the body was the one to be sacrificed. The head was the one to be served the body was the one to serve. Well, if we don't have that in mind, we won't catch up on, onto the radical way that Paul talks about and employs this head-body metaphor. So, as we look at this text, when Paul employs it, um, he, he uses it very differently. To emphasize this, I want to read a line that a, a historian wrote that I thought was helpful. Um, for the head to endanger itself is seen not as a noble action, but rather as a misguided one. So do you hear that? An ancient way of talking about the head-body metaphor, it was not noble for the head to endanger itself. That was not a noble action, but a misguided one. Instead, it was the duty of the leader to see his own safety. That's the way that, that leadership and that authority and that headship was talked about in the ancient world. Well, when Paul starts to write about this, he, he I think, is applying Jesus' teaching about authority that we find in Matthew 20, where Jesus tells his disciples, don't exercise authority as the Gentiles do who lord it over them, but instead you give up yourself, you sacrifice yourself. So whereas in the ancient world, the sacrifice of the body was understood as an act of love and their due calling. In Paul's writing, it is the head that is to sacrifice itself for the body. As one theologian cleverly put it, Paul turns the metaphor on its head, right? He turns it upside down. We're to understand it in a totally different way. Now, as we try to understand it this way, I think this helps us navigate a debate that, that is still raging about the nature of headship. And if this is of no interest to you, hang on with me for a brief moment. The, the word head, and again, this is our more academic side of things, is this word kephale, and, and you can hear that in medical terminology that's talking about the head. But, but there's this debate in Christian churches about what does that mean. And on the one side, you have individuals who are arguing that head just means authority. So it's authority. So when Paul assigns the husband is the head, he's saying the husband is to exercise authority over his wife. And then on the other side of the debate, there's this the suggestion that head does not mean authority, but it means source. 
So if you ever talk about the head of a river, where, where the source of the water comes from or something like that, that's how this group is understanding that word head and understanding headship. So the, the debate essentially follows these lines. On the one side, you have individuals who say husbands are the authority in their homes and they need to exercise authority over their wives because they're the head. On the other side, you have individuals saying Paul is not trying to put husbands in a position of authority. Instead, he's just trying to say that husbands are the source of life for their wives and for their family. And, and so as we get into our modern age, we can dispense with the idea of headship because women can, can work in society as well and there's no need really for, for there to be a source of life. They can find it elsewhere. This debate I don't think is ever going to end. There, there's still things being written in this way. But I think we need to, as we look at this use of the metaphor by Paul, we need to start to understand that the answer to understanding Christian marriage won't be in trying to find the right lexical use of the word kephale. It's not going to be found in trying to determine whether authority or source is in view. My own understanding is that we can't understand this metaphor without understanding that authority is in view. Just every time it's used, in this imagery in the ancient world, authority is in view. But we can't stop there. And I think that's the weakness of, of many conservative teachings of this text and understandings of headship. It stops by saying, we found the right definition for headship and it means authority. Well, we need to take the next step that says, Paul, following Jesus, radically redefines what authority is. No longer is it this lording of authority over people, but instead it's a giving up of the self for the other. This will inform us as we preach this text next week and understand it, but we start to understand that Jesus totally reconfigures authority. This will be easier for us to understand and accept if we are reading the Gospels, where Jesus tries to show this to his disciples and, and to the Jews over and over again. And this will help us as we try to think about authority in our own lives and in our own day. I think, unfortunately, we can be more like the, the opponents of Jesus who didn't want to follow Jesus' pattern of authority. So they looked at Jesus and said, yeah, we'll make you king. You come be the authority and lord it over these Gentiles and get them out of here. And in fact, why don't you appoint us as, as your vice regent so that we can exercise that authority too? But as we read the Gospels, Jesus does not get rid of authority. He simply reframes it. And when we start to next week consider what it means for husbands to exercise headship, we need to be careful not to jettison the idea of authority, but instead to redefine it as Jesus in, in here in Ephesians, as Paul did. So as we understand the ancient use of the head-body metaphor, it, it sort of illumines the text for us. So we've talked about Paul's audience, we've talked about household codes, we've talked about this head-body metaphor. We need to just briefly now talk about some of the literary features of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And what I mean by that is we can't read these verses apart from the rest of the verses in Ephesians. So I want to draw your attention to just a couple features of Ephesians. First, these commands, both to spouses and to parents and, and then to the slaves and masters, come within the larger context of Ephesians, where Paul has 
talked about these individuals in a way that includes all of them in the new humanity. So if you hear me saying we can't jettison the head-body metaphor, we can't jettison authority, you, you might misunderstand me to be saying that we're going to start making distinctions within, within value and identity based on where you would fall in that household code. That's not what I'm saying. However we interpret and put into actions those texts, we have to do it tempered by the way that Paul talks to all of these individuals as a collective whole, as he talks about them being part of God's family, part of the new humanity, and equally being members of the body of Christ. So however we put this text into action, we can't minimize the instructions that Paul has already given. The second thing I want to point out is that as Paul begins in verse 22, where he tells wives to submit to their husbands, this, this, is a, this verse is connected to what goes before it. And though it doesn't come through very clearly in our English translations, at the end of verse 21, ours says submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then it says wives submit to your husbands. Well, in the Greek text, there aren't two separate verses there. It's, it just goes on submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to their own husbands. And so as we understand these texts, these verses, we can't so disconnect them from the paragraph that goes before. Most of us have headings in our Bibles that make it seem like this is not related, but it's actually very closely connected. So what's the payoff of this? How does this help us understand it? Well, the main verbs that, that these ideas are connected to are the verbs in Ephesians 5.15 about paying careful attention to how you live, and then in verse um, 18 about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to frame however we apply and understand these verses to the paragraph that comes before it. Okay, we need to keep moving here. So so literally, all I'm trying to say here is that these texts are really connected to what come before and what come after. Depending on who you're reading, and I know some of you are reading lots of books on these things, there will be some who suggest Uh, that we shouldn't include verbs for the wife to submit in the following text. Because in the Greek text, there actually are no verbs directly addressed to wives. There's no instruction directly given to wives. They're all implied verbs. And so some individuals will say, we should just remove those altogether. And, And that's simply not the case. Every Bible translation includes them because it's just a convention of the Greek to have implied verbs, and we don't really do that in English. But I know that there are books out there that are on a popular level that would say we should just remove any language of submission here because they're implied verbs and they're not explicit verbs, whereas all the instructions to the husbands to love their wives, those are explicit verbs. I just want to pause and say we can't get rid of them because that's just bad language. It's bad grammar. We need to include them. However, I will concede that it is, I think, Paul's intent to leave them as implied verbs and to make explicit the commands to the husband because he's trying to weigh the text in a particular direction. He's trying to emphasize the instruction to husbands over against the instruction to wives. We don't jettison the instruction to wives, but we do pick up on this grammatical convention and we start to focus more on the instructions given to the husband. Okay, we've done a lot of trudging through some really challenging things. Some of you love that, some of you hate it. 
Um, but we get to the end now where we can start to formulate some theological propositions. So if you have tuned out for our long traverse through the history lecture, you can jump back in now and just at least hear the conclusions that we have here. I think these will be helpful for you as you read through this text in the coming week and as we um, consider it next week in the sermon. Um, so first, I think we need to say that this text addresses the relationship between husbands and wives, not the relationship between men and women, whether in the church or in the larger world. We cannot press the head-body imagery here onto the relationship between men and women generally. Paul is giving instruction to wives in the way that they relate to their own husbands and to husbands in the way that they relate to their own wives. So sometimes this text is employed in a way that says all women need to submit to all men. And that's simply not the case. It's not the way that the household codes worked, and it's not what Paul is doing here. And so as we study this, we need to constrain our putting into action of this text to, to marriage, to husbands and wives together. Now we're going to have to think about what it means to submit, and we'll do that next week. But, but this is something that relates to husbands and wives, not to men and women generally. Second, this text addresses the way that husbands and wives are to relate to one another rather than prescribing particular roles for husbands and wives. So I am trying to make a clear distinction, distinction between the word relate and the word role. I think this text is instructing husbands and wives to relate to each other in a particular way. It's not prescribing a role that they are to take on um, with certain responsibilities. So sometimes this text is read, and then there's an application that goes like this. Because there's a distinction in the way that husbands and wives relate to each other, there also must be particular roles that they take on, so let's examine um, American history or even larger world history and identify what we would envision as an idyllic time period and prescribe those roles to husbands and wives. So for some, they'll look at the agricultural time of America's I idyllic place where both men and women should be working at home on their, on their farm together. Others will look at the Industrial Revolution, where primarily men were going off to work and women were staying home, and then prescribe roles fitting with that cultural construct. Some will like to look back even farther, not, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but to 2,000 years ago, and say that was the idyllic time, and those are the, the roles that were manifested culturally there that we need to import to our culture now. I want to suggest that this text is not prescribing particular roles that each individual is to carry out, but instead is instructing on the manner that husbands and wives are to relate to one another. I think this is why, in part, Paul remains somewhat vague here. He doesn't give explicit instruction on how submission and sacrifice will look in every single marriage. What that would do is flatten out everyone's marriage and all cultures in a way that's just not sustainable. And, and it wouldn't give a way forward for individuals who are in unique situations as well. So we need to avoid applying this text in a way that I, I think projects maybe our idyllic view of a particular kind of history onto, onto marriage. I know that leaves more questions than answers, 
but we'll get into that a little bit next week. But, but I think this is a really important piece. This is about the way we relate to each other, not especially about the exact role that we'll take on. Third, this text provides general instructions and does not explore the full depth of relational challenges and complications faced by husbands and wives together. So what I'm trying to say here is that Paul is giving a general word of instruction. He's not trying to deal with all of the caveats and exceptions and challenges that are faced in marriage. If this text is read as as, um, something that needs to be applied in every situation in the same way, regardless of the unique challenges that individuals face, that's when we start to see this text turned into a bat that beats people instead of a tool that's intended to create harmony and unity and to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. There have been times where pastors or individual Christians will talk about a text, this text in a way that says wives who are being beaten at home need to just submit to that and stay there. I I watched a video this week of a prominent pastor saying just that. We need to understand that these are general instructions and and we need to have the wisdom of the Spirit to discern when it's being misapplied. And and we need to understand that there are some unique facets here that, that we just have to deal with as we put this text into action in individual marriages. I think we start to see this a little bit. We start to understand that Paul has a wider understanding of what marriage is and how it works itself out as we read his other letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, he goes into a lot of details about marriage that are not found here. And what that should instruct us in is to understand that this general instruction should be received in just that way. Is general instruction that should be the, the rule. There are exceptions to the rule that prove the rule, but this is a general text, and there are certainly situations where it's been abused and misused. Fourth, in this text, Paul maintains the head-body imagery even as he tweaks it. I think this is instructive for us to say that we cannot get rid of the head-body imagery either. I think as unpopular as it is in our modern Western society that I a kind of egalitarianism that flattens out all distinction between men and women, as unpopular as this is, we need to maintain it, but we need to maintain it rightly. One of the reasons this idea of headship gets thrown under the bus and and, um, stereotyped in a negative way is because it's been put into use in a negative way. Nevertheless, I think that we need to maintain these distinctions and this imagery, and it should frame the way that we talk about marriage because it's the language that Paul gives us. So as we proceed there, I know that it might be challenging to hear that, especially if you have been in, in a marriage situation that, that this text was abused, or perhaps if, if you're just in like anyone else in our world hearing the exact opposite of what Paul's saying. It's hard to accept this, but I hope that as you think about these things and the way Paul talks about it, you'll start to understand this is, this is God's good plan and design. It's not an ancient, archaic, cultural convention that needs to just be abandoned. If it helps, remember that the most radical opponents, the way Paul talks about the, the headship and bodyship in a marriage, are the same who essentially 
destroy any concept of gender and any concept of marriage altogether. So filter through where you're hearing these things, but ultimately try to hear this text as Paul gives it. Finally, as we move forward and look at this text, we need to once again affirm that as we apply this text, we need to do so in the larger context of Ephesians. We don't diminish or negate anything else that Paul says in order to apply this text in a unique way. And in fact, we will see, especially as we get into the text regarding slaves and masters, that Paul writes in a particular way to bring about harmony and, and friendship and righteousness that might not be immediately evident if we just read this text through our modern eyes. So as we read, let's try to read with the historical background in mind, and perhaps even more importantly, let's try to read with the picture, the glorious picture of the church is the unified body of Christ that Paul presents in this letter. <clears throat> 